encourage you, if you have a copy of God's Word there with you, you're looking in 2 Peter in the second chapter. 2 Peter chapter 2. Also, I encourage your intercession for our tech guys back there who are all now on blood pressure medication and we keep a Valium salt lick available to them at all times back there. Uh, I would offer to be helpful, but my toolbox consists only of ever larger hammers, which are rarely useful in such technological settings. Sorry, guys, I know that's been tough back there. Anyway, thank you all for your patience as we... We'll work through this. Second Peter, second chapter, beginning at verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot greatly, excuse me, if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And now just the first part of verse 10, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. This is indeed the word of our God. Let's pray. Now, Father, may we hear these words as your word. May this be brought to us with power and conviction. Oh, Lord, help us. Make us strong for the battle. Make us gracious But, O Lord, give our souls the steel that we need to stand. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The early church father, Tertullian, born somewhere around 150 A.D., considered one of the three great early church fathers from North Africa. Known for being a militant Christian that wrote against many heresies, His writings created the framework for some of the most important theological beliefs of the church. He was the first church father to write extensively in Latin and set the tone for how many of the subsequent church fathers approached their theological discussions. Tertullian especially wrote against those who tried to blend Christianity with the existing philosophies and religions of the day. 
He was one of the most important church fathers because of his ability to write the teachings of the scriptures, uh, unite, excuse me, unite the writings of the fathers and the scriptures with the church. He could take these things and communicate them clearly. What may not be known is his conversion. He was puzzled. He saw these people, these individuals who were called Christians, take a stand for something that to him was absolutely insignificant. They were unwilling to do something that everyone else was willing to do. Even other very religious people had said this phrase, but the Christians wouldn't say it. It was just two words. Kaisar, Kurian, Caesar is Lord. And everybody could give a tip of the hat to that. If the emperor wanted to be a god, fine, let him be a god. Everybody wanted to be a god. What's the big deal? And yet over and over and over again, Christians wouldn't do it. They preferred death in the arena over uttering those two words. And that made Tertullian pay attention. It leads to his conversion. We continue in 2 Peter. We find in this second chapter warnings about the dangers of false teachers and their judgments, along with promises of deliverance for the faithful. As it was true in the first and second centuries, it's been true throughout the life of the church. There is always a competition of ideas. There is always something pushing against the faith. Eighty years ago, Dr. Lloyd-Jones saw a difficult time in 19, early 1940s, about 1941. Listen to what he says, and I pondered this as I think about what I hear us say today. Not often has there been a time, and certainly not for many centuries, when the profession of Christianity and truth has been so severely tested as it is today. It's not popular to be a Christian today. There was a time when it would help a man to get a job, when it would help a man to get on his profession, but today it's almost a hindrance. To be a Christian is almost as if you're some doubtful kind of person. It's not popular. There's no glamour about it. And this is how it tests us. 
The man who holds on tenaciously to the gospel today does so because he really believes it and because he knows it to be God's truth. Now, I'm sitting there, well, Dr. Lloyd-Jones didn't know anything. (laughs) Careful. My brothers and sisters, what this ought to shout to us is there really in many ways is not a great uniqueness to our time. Oh, admittedly, wickedness is absolutely running rampant. But that should not be a shock to us. David Wells, looking back 20 years ago, talks about what happened to Christianity and much of uh, theology that by the end of the 60s, perhaps signaled initially by the death of God theology. Maybe you didn't know there was actually a theology in the 60s called the death of God theology. I'm old enough to remember when Time magazine had on the front cover, God is dead. And that wasn't being said by atheists, that was being said by ostensibly Christian theologians. I say this to say, my friend, not to lull you to sleep, but, and, and to remind you, we're not playing games here this morning. What happens in this time matters for both now and eternity. If we're not faithful, if we don't give warning, if we are unwilling to stand, we are faithless then. We're useless. Our tendencies swing left and right. We we go from either thinking our time isn't so bad, that we're dangerously blind to its dangers, or we think that our time is so bad, it's impossible to live for the Lord and it's impossible to have any hope. Both of those are lies from the pit. There's never a time that there isn't danger. There's never a time when you and I ought to be hopeless. For you see, I think what Peter tells us here is this. The Lord never lets the wicked go. And he never lets go of the righteous. The Lord never lets the wicked go, get by, slide. But he also never lets go of the righteous. So let's consider how Peter shows us this reality. That the wicked are never safe and the righteous are never ultimately in danger of destruction. What's his first principle? Well, first I think that judgment is impartial. Verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. Ooh. Sounds a lot like Jude. Verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. 
Keep in mind that sin entered in a place of holiness. Keep in mind the reality of rebellion, of sinfulness, predates the fall of humanity. There has been, prior to creation, apparently, this great struggle, a battle, if you will. Now, please understand, I am not affirming a dualistic view of the world. This is not the yin and yang of oriental thinking. It is not a balance between the good light and the dark of the force. But there has been rebellion against God and His holiness in spiritual realms before it worked its way into physical realms. When Jesus refers to the danger for the goats, you remember in Matthew 25, He talks about the goat and the sheep. And He will ultimately say of the goats, to those on His left, depart from Me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. Now listen to this phrase. Prepared for the devil and his angels. There was eternal punishment for the rebellious one, Satan, and his angels prior to time. There is indeed a cosmic element in both rebellion and judgment. We see it in the book of Revelation in the 12th chapter. Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Is that me? Oh dear. Are we going to have that too? All right, let's try something here. Can you switch it back to just this? Oh, there it is. <laughs> My friends, if God will not hesitate to judge angels, beings far higher than ourselves, then he will certainly not hesitate to judge mere men. It not only shows God as an impartial judge, but an omnipotent one. The imagery of war in heaven was never with the idea there was a question about the outcome. The Lord is sovereign. The enemy is not. The Lord is omnipotent. The enemy is not. Isaiah 14 is often seen as a dual understanding that may well be referencing Satan. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you're cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I'll set my throne on high. I'll sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'll make myself like the most high. 
which are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. The first principle is this, my friend. God's judgment is impartial. It crosses in the spiritual and into our physical realm. Not only is it impartial, but it's also universal. Verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. He's going to reference the flood, and the destruction is the flood. Now, I'll stop here to say, just in case you're not certain, I don't know how you deal with the flood narrative in the book of Genesis and not take into account that it implies, declares quite clearly that this was a universal flood that covered the entirety of the created world. I don't struggle over that. Now, I know there are folks out there that say, well, you know, when you look at archaeology, when you look at this, when you look at that, I say, yes, but you are the people who also think something came from nothing. I'm, 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 I'm kind of at a loss for what to do for you. Out of nothing, nothing comes. You're also the folks who want to believe that aliens are showing up. I, it's fine. I, I won't go any further. If he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, we read the destruction in Genesis 7. We read about it. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth, Forty days and forty nights, and Genesis 7:24, and the water prevailed on the earth 150 days. There is destruction that God brought on this world. We're not given great detail about all that went on, simply that the world had become so wicked, so horrid, so evil, that God said enough. And he brings about a flood. And literally what the text says here, the ESV interprets a bit for us, which is helpful when it uses this, uh, Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, literally what it says is Noah the eighth. All, all Peter's driving at is this, in an entire world, <laughs> there are eight who are saved deliverance for Noah and his family. God doesn't destroy the good with the bad. We're told in Genesis 6-9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. My friend, how difficult to live righteously in a wicked world. Can I let you in on a little secret? Ain't nobody believe there's going to be a flood. Noah preaches his life out, his heart out, for 100 years plus. And how many converts did he see? His family. It's weird to stand out. Right? It's odd. It's uncomfortable. 
Some of us would rather die than somehow be singled out. You know, you folks who terrified somebody would call on you in a Sunday school class to answer a question. You would crawl under a chair if you could. To stand and be that weird one. Nobody believed in the flood. Nobody believed in judgment. My friend, with all of what I said earlier, please know, I understand there can be different views of how things worked out in history, in the ancient history of the world. I'm not trying to pick on somebody trying to wrestle with it truly as a Christian. What I'm picking on are folks who want to derive personality from that which cannot give personality. That is, out of nothing, you never get personality. Out of nothing, you can't explain us. Out of nothing, love means nothing. Courage means nothing. Nobility means nothing. Good and evil mean nothing. And yet we see this pattern, destruction, deliverance. This judgment is universal. It points forward to a coming judgment. This would be the third element that I'd have you think about. Not just coming, but consuming. God's judgment's not only impartial and universal, it is consuming. Verses 6 through 8, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Yes, the scripture clearly speaks again of destruction. You see the pattern. Destruction, yet deliverance. Destruction, yet deliverance. The pagan cities who express their wickedness through homosexual behavior and a violent one at that are set as examples of a coming judgment on the ungodly. One of the most insulting things that the prophets would say to Israel is they would compare Israel, they'd compare Judah to Sodom and Gomorrah. You can see it in the first chapter of Isaiah where he calls them, you people of Sodom, you people of Gomorrah. Why, that was insulting. Jesus will do something similar. Matthew 11 you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. you say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. How, how is that fair? They, they were living really wicked in Capernaum. They were at least outwardly righteous people. And I'll tell you exactly how that works out, my friend. It is one thing to live immorally. It is quite another to be in the presence of the very Son of God walking on earth, His Messiah, and not believe in Him. Mm. And yet there is also deliverance. Now, I'm, let me make another quick aside here. You're going to hear some who say, well, now, Sodom and Gomorrah is in the Bible, but it's there merely as an allegory or a parable and that the sin of the Sodom, the folks of Sodom and Gomorrah was, was not homosexuality, it was a lack of hospitality. Uh, 
All that deserves is a heavy sigh. The text is clear. But then we're told this about Lot. I'm curious, have you ever read this little bit of 2 Peter about Lot and gone, huh? Because when you read about Lot in the book of Genesis, I mean, you don't get a good impression, right? You, you, you read Genesis 13, and he, he had stuff, and goods, and, and Abraham did, and they were always having struggles, and so Abraham, being a generous, and let's say not too bright, uh, tells his nephew, you pick where you and your people are going to go, and we'll go somewhere else. And he looks around, and it's not hard. The Jordan River Valley. Most fertile area in the land, and there were a couple of bad cities there, but that's where he wanted to go. So Abraham allows it, and Abraham goes east. Hmm. And you, you see that there's bad stuff going on. And right in the middle of geopolitical matters, there's an ancient conflict and warfare in Genesis. And you read in Genesis 14, Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sedim with Kedalor. Kedalaomer, I'll get that out eventually, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Golim, Amraphael, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elassar, four kings against five. And the valley of Sinem was full of bitumen pits. This is, by the way, R.C. Sproul when he talks about how Hebrew uses doubled and tripled words to make emphasis. Whenever the Bible says God is holy, 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 that's Hebraic. It's a triple. It's as holy as anything could be. Literally what the Hebrew says here where it says by two men pits in the ESV, it's called the pit pits. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, the rest to the hill country. And so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And then you read in this Genesis 14 verse 12, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom in his possessions and went their way. And you recall, you'd think that maybe Lot would kind of get the idea that maybe he's not where he ought to be. Abraham puts together the first assemblage of Israeli commandos and goes and rescues his nephew and his family. Gets them out of danger. Now compared to Abraham, Lot appears to be a bit of a self-serving fellow who looks out for himself. And I personally don't doubt that that is to some extent true. Yet Peter tells us something else. Lot was a just man. And he is living righteously. I don't know about you, but I find in that both warning and comfort. Warning in that you probably ought to pay real close attention to what situations you place yourself in. But comfort to know that the Lord can still love you and use you in some dire circumstances and places maybe where you wandered possibly where you shouldn't have gone. 
Does anybody besides me find that comforting? I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible about sheep, and sheep are stupid, they've wandered places they ought not be, I, I, I see this as kind of an example. Yet he was a righteous man. You see, it's not impossible for the children of the Lord to live among the most profane and still retain their integrity. It is possible to stand against the crowd. It's possible to be vexed and grieved by sin and yet not yourself sin. So the Lord rained judgment down on Sodom and Gomorrah and yet he rescues Lot and his family. And we read that, or was read to us earlier. Thank you for doing that, Steve. That text out of Genesis 19. So as you see, judgment is impartial, it's universal, it's consuming. But here's, you notice this is always a series of ifs here. If this, if that, if that, now we kind of get the summary. Judgment isn't just impartial, universal, and consuming. Judgment is discerning. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Christian, here is the comfort you should take from this text. You are being rescued. You are being preserved. You may get knocked around a little bit. Your life may be difficult. There is some bad stuff that can happen to you. Christians are not immune from the struggles and difficulties of this world. And many of them are unjust and unrighteous and seem completely and totally undeserved. Yet, hear me, my friend, the Lord knows how to rescue you. Now, you and I want to kibitz with the Lord. We want to have a conversation. Now, Father, this isn't working out the way that I thought it ought to work out. And I have several marvelous suggestions for you as to the ways in which you should deliver me from my current situation. And I think you've learned what I've learned over the course of my life. The Lord with wondrous grace, mercy, and love ignores them every single time. And yet here I be. And here you be. My friend, never lose sight of the reality that the Lord preserves his people. He's promised to do that. At the same time, he has promised retribution to those who are rebellious. Now, this may not be obvious. But do you understand the judgment of God doesn't always look like fire falling from heaven or a flood covering the earth or immediately being shut up in perdition and chained in gloomy darkness. God is discerning in his judgment. You know, I hear people say things, well, God's got to judge America. 
Friend, hear what I'm about to say. God is judging America. Well, nothing's happening. Oh, it is. Romans chapter 1. You see, my friend, sometimes, here's, here is how wicked and how deeply sin gets ingrained in us. We are so given to our sin at, in many ways that we don't see the horror and the danger and the destruction inherent in sinful behavior. And in Romans 1, you can take time to read this if you want this afternoon, Paul actually articulates a theology not merely of sin, but of judgment. And he says, one of the ways the wrath of God is revealed is by letting you keep sinning. Well, I'm just going to do what I want to do. How's that the judgment of God? Because what you want to do is leading to your damnation. What you long to do, the wickedness that you think is your good and your longing is actually poison and destruction. And you keep looking for fulfillment in things that God says are contrary to righteousness and contrary to your good and his honor. And as long as you keep embracing those things, all you're doing is hardening your heart, searing your conscience, and spiraling to destruction. See, this is why, see, this is why when we talk about things like church discipline, sometimes it gets misunderstood. I've had people say, well, if you kick somebody out of the church and they just go live their merry life however they want to, what have you done? What good have you done? Well, if nothing else, you've probably shown they weren't Christians. Paul calls that handing somebody over to Satan for the destruction of the body, that their soul may be saved. So when a church actually exercises church discipline to the extent they have to remove somebody from membership, you understand what we're doing by that. We are saying and asking the Lord to say, this is a brother or sister, we believe. But they won't repent. And they won't hear us. So Lord, they're going to live like this. We're going to treat them like that's what they are. Now, if they go on their merry way and their life is fine and there's no trouble and everything is just wonderful, then what that tells you is our judgment was initially correct. Their behavior and lack of repentance are showing they're not real. Oh, but you see, if you're the Lord's and he starts bringing things into your life that are destructive and crushing if you're his, by his grace, your heart starts going, oh no, I know what this is. I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. And there will be repentance. Friend, don't, don't look out here at the world. Don't make this mistake. 
You look out at worldlings and you see they live wickedly, they speak wickedly, they act wickedly, everything about them is wicked, and they seem to have, they, they're celebrities. People think they're wonderful. They've got money. They've got influence. Everybody just thinks they're cool. And it's like, well, I'm, I'm just, you know, here I am living righteously. My life's kind of hard. Oh, Christian, the Lord is preserving you. He is preserving you from destruction. Do you grasp something, my friend? If you're a Christian, hear what I'm saying today. The pleasures of this world enjoyed in ways that God never intended. It's not to say they aren't pleasures, but they're never what God intended them to be. And that every single lost person, this is as close as they are ever going to get to joy and satisfaction and good. That's as close as they're going to get. And Christian, hear this. No matter how difficult your life is, and we could have lots of testimonies about what some of you are going through. This suffering in this life is the only suffering you will ever face. Ever. By the way, there, there's no purgatory. Okay? There, there's, and there's no regrets in the life to come. What you face in this world, in this life, is as close as you'll ever get to anything approaching eternal judgment. And it's not even judgment, it's chastening. It's the Lord purging you. It's the Lord working in your life. It is actually the expression of his great love. So how should we take this? What should we do with it? False teachers are going to arise. They will incur the wrath of God. The certainty of their destruction is as certain as God's judgment on offending angels, on the world of the flood, and on Sodom and Gomorrah. And your salvation, Christian, is just as certain as Noah's and Lot's. The Lord knows how to save his church through the judgment of false teachers that have and will come. But this is always, and I'll conclude this way, this is always and ever the structure of God's saving work. The cross is not only the demonstration of the love of God, though it is that. The cross is also the demonstration of the justice of God. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The judgment that should have fallen on you and me fell on the eternal Son of God. But 
God demonstrates his love to us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for, on behalf of, in the place of, us. Salvation is always through judgment. Our judgment happened 2,000 years ago on the hill of Golgotha. Christian, God is not going to judge you. You're already judged. Wrath will not fall on you. It's already fallen. But for those who are not his, that judgment will fall on them. And if God did not spare his son, what shall be the outcome for those who never believe in his son? My friend, I say this to you. If you're not a Christian today, my call to you, my command to you as the ambassador of Christ, turn from your sin, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Trust him. Let's pray. And now, our Father, we pray, we ask, that you would come by your spirit as you have throughout the preaching. And in these moments now, you would make application even more powerfully that we would understand our sinfulness and our need of a savior. I'm praying, Lord, that someone has come to faith today. I'm praying as well that a believer who struggled to stand sees how desperately essential it is to stand in the face even of a culture and a society that labels us intolerant and haters and backward and fools. O oh Lord, as Christians, may we live to hear only from your lips, well done, good and faithful servant. So now, our Father, we pray, as we sing now in response to this, your word, that this would be our worship, this would be our joy, this would be our commitment. Your judgment is real. You don't let the wicked get away with anything. But, oh, Lord, you never let us go. For that we give thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.